a good time of year. I love the Christmas season uh, to have extra time with family, uh, to celebrate, of course, the, the Lord's birth, and then to come into the new year. I love that we sang, Great is Thy Faithfulness this morning. Uh, just a great time to reflect on God's faithfulness to us in the past year. And then, of course, all the excitement as we think about a new year that's coming, 2022. 20, who knows what will come in this new year? I'm guessing some of you are the type who like to sit down and look over your life and evaluate some of the things that you've done in the past year and ways you want to grow this year. You probably make lists, you write those down, you put them on your fridge, maybe put them on your, your wallpaper on your phone that you want to live up to these goals, these resolutions. Uh, I tried that in college a few times. Uh, never really worked for me. I would get about a month in and be like, man, I'm, I'm not even close to any of these goal, so I kind of gave up on that. I'm more of a, yeah, I'm going to try to aspire to a few things. That's kind of my, my MO. Maybe reveals a little bit about myself. Uh, maybe you're like me. Maybe you're the, you're the type that, that is uh, the one who has these goals and, and you're all, all about them. I think for all of us, as we enter into a new year, there is a sense of starting fresh, starting new, sort of a, a mental reset, a spiritual reset, probably a physical reset as well. I think this is all good. It's healthy. Uh, as I think about that, that impulse, I think at the root of it is really this desire for blessing, that, that we want to be blessed by God. We want our lives to be blessed. We're searching for more order, perhaps, maybe more discipline in some areas, maybe more freedom in others. We want to be blessed. We want to accomplish something. And as we do so, we, we want to be happy. We want to be content. So this morning, what I want to do is turn to Psalm 67, because this psalm hits all of these themes, but even as it does so, it orients us to a bigger picture of what God is doing in the world. It shows us that our lives are not just about our own individual selves, but it shows us that God has a plan for the world. God has a, a trajectory that all of human history is on, and our lives are to be ordered according to it. So turn with me, if you will, to Psalm 67. And as you turn there, let me pray for us. Father in heaven, the unfolding of your word gives light. It imparts understanding to the simple. So Lord, we want to see your glory. We ask that you would shine your light upon us as we open your word this morning. Show us your light and grant us understanding, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So follow along as I read. This is Psalm 67. To the choir master with stringed instruments, a psalm, a song. May God be gracious to us and bless us and make his face to shine upon us. That your way may be known on earth, your saving power among all nations. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. Let the nations be glad and sing for joy, for you judge the peoples with equity and guide the nations upon the earth. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. The earth has yielded its increase. God, our God, shall bless us. God shall bless us. Let all the ends of the earth fear him. There's one main point from this psalm. The main point is this, God blesses his people so that 
You see that in verse 2, the beginning of verse 2, so that there's a, a purpose here, a purpose clause. God blesses his people so that his way would be known among all nations of this world. That little phrase, the so that, that you see in verse 2, that's the, the thing I want to stick in your minds this morning. And as you leave from here, that's what I hope that you take away, that there's a so that to God's blessing. Now, this psalm is a missionary psalm. You've probably heard it uh, preached that way. There's a, a call here to go. The nations are in view here. That we want to work and to labor that the nations of this world would be glad in God. And I hope that that vision, that missionary call is before each one of us. Uh, Kevin mentioned it uh, earlier in his prayer. We had several high school and college students attend the cross conference over the new year uh, where they took this psalm and other texts and, and caught that vision that God is seeking to bless the nations of this world. And I hope that it's not just for young people, but it's for all of us, that this same call is for us. But this psalm is not just for missionaries. It's not that just missionaries are blessed or only missionaries are blessed. This psalm shows us that all of God's people, wherever they're found, are blessed and will be blessed so that the nations of this world would come to know God. And so this morning, I want us to think about this psalm. And my hope and my prayer is that each of us would see God's global plan so that as we think about this new year and our lives in this new year, so that our lives, our way would align with God's way, so that the nations might be glad in God. So four questions that we'll think about together as we go through this text. Number one, who is this God of blessing? Number two, what is God's plan for the nations? Number three, how will God bless the nations? And four, what does this psalm demand from me? So who is this God of blessing? Four things we see here. This is a God of grace, verse 1. The, the very fact that the psalmist is asking for God to bless him, to bless us, God's people, shows us that he is a God of grace. Now, it's not obvious that God is a God of grace. I think we all want him to be, but, but it's certainly not obvious. If you ask the average person on the street, is, is God a God of blessing? I think they would say yes. We all want God to bless us. But then you'll often hear people say things like this, that God is a domineering God. That he's a tyrant. He's just trying to steal my joy. Th this isn't a God of grace. If you think about the, the people in the nations of this world, they have gods or gods who are capricious. They need to constantly be satisfied by rituals and offerings. These are gods that take. They don't give. So it's not obvious that God would be a God of grace or a God of blessing. But here the psalmist is reminding us of the covenant-keeping God who revealed himself to Moses as the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. God is a God of grace. And as light is meant to shine in the darkness, so God's grace is meant to spill over to his creatures. We don't know that unless God reveals it. And here the psalmist is reminding us of that, that God is a God of grace. Verse 1, 
We also see that this is the only true God. We see that in verse 3 where the psalmist says, Let the peoples praise you, O God. The psalmist, as he's looking out at these nations, these nations that are filled with their own gods and their own deities, the psalmist is saying that they are to praise you because this God, he is the true and the only God. He is not impressed with pluralism. The sort of, yeah, you have your gods and we have ours and let's just get along. No, the psalmist here is saying that these nations who have hundreds and thousands of years of religious tradition, that they are to turn and to praise this God because he's the only true God. Isaiah 40, we read this, To whom then will you compare me that I should be like him? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. Or in Isaiah 42, verse 8, I am the Lord, that is my name. My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. Now you might think that this sounds a little harsh or maybe mean-spirited, but the psalmist here has the good of the nations in mind. He knows the link between blessing, that's what this psalm is about, blessing and God as creator. Blessing can only come from the true God because he alone is able to act in his creation from nothing. Where does blessing come from? It can only come from a God who is able to act from nothing. And that's why throughout the Old Testament, as the writers come into contact with idols, they're constantly being mocked, these idols, for being mute and deaf and powerless. Right? Idols have no knowledge, no wisdom, no authority, no power to speak or create. And so an idol can't bless you with anything because it has nothing to give you. Why would you worship a God who is powerless to do anything for you? But the creator, the true God, he alone is the giver of good gifts because he alone created those gifts and he alone can purpose those gifts specifically and uniquely for his people. But this is the only and true God. We see here as well that this God is a God of justice. Look at verse 4. The psalmist says here that this God, for you, judge the peoples with equity. This is a God of justice. Now that word equity is sort of a buzzword in our day today. But here in the Old Testament and throughout the Bible, this word means to stand on level ground. It's often translated in the Old Testament as a, as a plain or a flat area, a tableland. What it means is to be treated level or fairly, you might say, according to the same standard. It's not that everyone will end up in the same place. That's not biblical equity, but rather they are judged, we are judged according to the same standard. Psalm 45, verse 6, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of your kingdom is a scepter of uprightness. There's that same word, uprightness. We just saw over the last few weeks as we looked at the prophecies in Isaiah of the coming Messiah. One of those texts was, was Isaiah 11, verse 4. And there, when we read about this coming Messiah, Isaiah tells us that he will not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear, but with righteousness he shall judge the poor 
and decide with equity, there's our word, decide with equity for the meek of the earth. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist and faithfulness the belt of his loins. What we see here is this judge, this, this God of justice, he does not show partiality. He does not judge based on what his eyes see. He doesn't change his standards based on your wealth or your color or age or IQ or gender or job title or lived experience. The standard is his own pure, unchanging righteousness. And one of the things the psalmist is showing us here in verse 4 is that this message, this message that God is a God of justice, is good news for the nations of this earth. And why is that? It's because the poor and the meek, they will not be judged more strictly or more severely just because they're in a low position. No, all have sinned. All have fallen short of the glory of God. And all will be judged by his standards. This God is the judge of the earth, and he will do what is right. God is a God of justice. And lastly, what the psalmist reveals to us, tells us about this God, is he is the God who sovereignly directs the hearts of kings and tenderly shepherds his people. Verse 4, he guides the nations upon the earth. Think of these powerful nations dynasties and cultures that have lasted for hundreds of years, nations with nuclear bombs and F-18 fighter jets, kings with wealth and power and fame. They're only pawns in the hands of God. He guides the nations of the earth. Proverbs 21 tells us the king's heart is a stream of water. In the hand of the Lord, he turns it wherever he will. And yet, this same God who acts powerfully to guide the nations of the earth, he also is the same God who tenderly leads his people. So think of Psalm 23, where we read, The Lord is my shepherd. He leads me, same word, guides the nations of the earth. This same God leads me beside still waters. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his namesake. Nowhere else do you find this combination of both strength and yet gentleness, both sovereign power and tender care. If you think back to Exodus, and as the Israelites are coming out of Egypt, Moses writes a song and sings this song and, and is reflecting on the deliverance that God has just given them. And here's what he says in Exodus 15. He says, who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? You stretched out your right hand. The earth swallowed them up. There's God's power. There's him leading Pharaoh's army straight into the Red Sea and then bringing the waters of judgment. You lead, you swallowed them up in your power. And then he says, very same, next sentence, very same verse, you have led in your steadfast love the people whom you have redeemed. You have guided them by your strength to your holy abode. There we see his gentle care for his people. This is the God who sovereignly directs the hearts of kings and yet tenderly shepherds his people. Now what is this God's plan for the nations? Four quick things we see here from this psalm. 
Number one, God's plan for the nations is that they would know his way. Verse two, your way may be known on the earth. To know God is what we were created for. His way here in verse two is his gracious covenant. This is what the psalmist is reflecting upon. The covenant that God had promised to Abraham all the way back in Genesis 12. If you remember that, God comes to Abram and says that he would make him a great nation, that he would bless him, he would make his name great, so that Abram himself would be a blessing. God says to him, I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you, I will curse, and in you the families of the earth shall be blessed. Now the psalmist is reflecting upon that promise of blessing And he's adding a layer to this covenant of blessing. He knows that God's aim is to bless the nations. And he also knows that this blessing will only come through salvation. That's what we see in verse 2. Your saving power among all nations. Your salvation among the nations. Here the psalmist is saying it's not just knowledge of God that will spread and cover the earth. But it's his way of salvation that will go out to these nations. So we are to know God and to know his salvation. Here's the second thing. God's plan for the nations is that they would fear him. Verse 7. Let all the ends of the earth fear him. I think we often think about loving God. We might say that first of all, that we are to love God. Here, the psalmist is giving us the opposite side of that same coin. He's directing us to the fear of God. You think about love. uh, One of the first things that comes to my mind about the love of God is Augustine, his insight about the love of God. That when we have God as our ultimate love, all our other loves can then be ordered rightfully. And when we don't have God as our chief love, our other loves are misdirected, they're misaligned. And so too, I think we see the same thing with fear. If we don't have a proper fear of God, our other fears will be misaligned and out of order. We become less happy and more fretful, not less, as we try to live without the fear of God. In a a newer book, uh, the author Mike Reeves Uh, This book is called Rejoice and Tremble. It's a book on the fear of God. Uh, And in this book, he makes this insight that over the last 100, 150 years, many of the sort of secularist, humanist philosophers said that as culture moves more and more away from belief in God, that we would become less fearful. Sort of this idea that belief in God is sort of primitive and it keeps people locked in fear. And so the thought was, or their thinking is, that as we move away from God, we will become less afraid. And here's what Mike Reeves says. He says, with society having lost God as the proper object of healthy fear, our culture is necessarily becoming ever more neurotic, ever more anxious about the unknown, indeed ever more anxious about anything and everything. In ousting God from our culture, other concerns, from personal health to health of the planet, have assumed a divine ultimacy in our minds. 
Good things have become cruel and pitiless idols, and thus we feel helplessly fragile, no longer anchored, society fills with free-floating anxieties. His insight here is that we are not a culture that is unafraid, but that we are more afraid than ever. These free-floating anxieties that just come up, everything and and anything can make us fearful. And of course, the antidote to this culture of fear and anxiety is not the message, don't be afraid, that's not it, but it's rather, be afraid, but be afraid of the right things, namely God. When Moses received the Ten Commandments in Mount Sinai, the text tells us the people there were afraid as they saw this mountain, and it was filled with smoke and thunder and lightning. And here's what Moses says to the people at that point. First thing he says, he says, Do not fear, don't be afraid, for God has come to test you. That, so here's the the so that, that the fear of him may be before you that you may not sin. Moses' message, don't be afraid, but fear God. You see that? Don't, don't, don't let your worldly fears, the, these unknown fears, take you away from God, but fear Him. Keep the fear of Him before you so that you may not sin. Theologian John Murray wrote that the fear of God is the soul of godliness. Or as the Proverbs say, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. God's plan for the nations is that they would fear him. Third thing, God's plan for the nations is that they would praise him. We see that repeated several times here, verse 3, verse 5. Let the peoples praise you, O God. As John Piper has famously said, missions exist because worship doesn't. This is the aim, this is the goal of all ministry, is that we people of this earth, the nations, would praise God. Worship is the aim, and it's the fuel in all that we do in life and in ministry. It's what we were created for, to know God and to praise Him. So why do we try to talk to our neighbors about Christ? Why do we meet one-on-one with someone to read the Bible? Why do we read good books on parenting or time management or dieting? Why do we even try to make New Year's resolutions? Why do we seek to train young pastors and send out missionaries? Well, it's because we are aimed at what we see in Revelation 5 and 7, where people from every tribe and language and nation are praising. They're singing this new song of praise to the Lamb. And what keeps us going in this mission? Well, it's the same thing. It's praise. It's worship. It's our aim, it's also our fuel. The more we sing and the more we behold the glory of God, the more fuel we have to spread this worship among others. God's plan for the nations is that they would praise him. And lastly, God's plan for the nations is that they would be glad in him, verse 4. Let the nations be glad. Let them be happy. Gladness, what is this? A a definition I would offer is this. Gladness is a consistent, enduring, and growing satisfaction with God and with his purposes. Gladness is a consistent, enduring, and growing satisfaction with God and all of his purposes. In the New Testament, the word that 
uh, comes to mind is the word contentment. Being content, being satisfied with who God is and his plans and purposes in this world. The picture is of Psalm 1, the man who is planted by a stream of water, this tree that grows, right? And it gets all of its nourishment and all of its fuel from this living stream. And, and, and the blessed man of Psalm 1, what does he do? His delight is that word, gladness, happiness, contentment. His delight is in the law of the Lord, and on it he meditates day and night. Being happy, being glad in who God is and his purposes in this world. It's a stunning thing, really, that God is actually aimed at our happiness. Why is he aimed at our happiness? Because his praise is at stake. That the happier I am in God, not in myself, not in my worldly pleasures, but happy in God, content in God, the more I will praise his name. And this is right because the only being whose value and worth and beauty who deserves such infinite praise is God himself. So God is concerned for our happiness, our gladness. So here's how I'd put these four together. God's plan, his purposes for the nations. Knowing God leads us to fear God, which shapes our happiness in God and increases our praise of God. Knowing God leads us to fear God, which shapes our happiness in God and increases our praise of God. This is God's plan for the nations. It's his plan for us. So third question, how will God bless the nations? How will he do it? Well, remember this psalm, Psalm 67, it's a song. We, we see that in the opening line there. It's also a prayer, right? And this is something that would have been sung, would have been prayed for hundreds of years. And what's happening in this psalm is that the psalmist and God's people subsequently after this psalm is actually praying Galatians 3 into existence. Galatians 3, here's what we read. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us so that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham, that's where the psalmist is reflecting on, this blessing might come to the Gentiles, to the nations. How does that happen? It's in Christ Jesus. What does he do? He redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. So the question, do you want to be blessed? Do you want to be happy? Do you want to be content in the new year? Paul here in Galatians is telling us the only way to do so is if you are in Christ. That's how God's blessing ultimately comes to us. You must be in Christ. You must be joined to him by faith. And when we do, when we, when we are in Christ, when we're joined to him, all the promises of God are yes in him. And through him, we utter our amen to God for his glory. So blessing comes to the nations only in Christ. But how else does God's blessing come to the nations? That's the ultimate way blessing comes. But how else does it come? Well, there's four Ps here in this psalm. We see people, possessions, prayer, and proclamation. So this message of blessing, that in Christ, God is blessing the nations, it comes to these nations through people. That's why the psalmist is saying, be gracious to us, bless us, make your face shine upon us. 
It's not just him individually, but it's the covenant people of God. It's God's people gathered together. This is who the psalmist has in mind. God delights to use his broken vessels to carry the treasure of the gospel to the nations because it shows that the power belongs to God and not to ourselves. So God blesses these nations by this message of Christ through the people of God. He also does it by possessions. Look at verse 6. Sort of a, a strange verse when you read back through this psalm. You wonder, why, why is this verse here? The earth has yielded its increase. God, our God, shall bless us. Or you might say, God has blessed us. And God will bless us. Possessions. A Christian recognizes that everything that I have is a gift from God. That all of our material wealth and possessions and health, and we have a lot of it here in this country, whether it's planning for retirement or buying a new car or going to college, there's so much that we have. All of those things, any way that the earth yields its increase for us, there's this so that attached to these things. That God has entrusted these things to us so that we might use them for the advancement of God's praise among all the peoples. So this blessing comes through God's people as they use their possessions to bring blessing to the nations. Prayer. The psalmist here, as we've already said, is praying the promises of God. He's reflecting back to what God had promised to Abraham. And now he's saying, Lord, spread this message. Spread this this blessing to the nations. So prayer is one of the means by which this blessing comes, that God would be pleased to use us, humble, our humble, inconsistent prayers, that God would use these to bless the nations. So pray. And then the third P, or fourth P rather, proclamation. So even as this psalm is a prayer, it's also a proclamation. Just like the ironic benediction from Numbers 6, there the priest would bless the people. And how would they bless them? He would do it by speaking a word of blessing to them. It's a spoken word. It's, it, it's an announcement of promise. You think of in the Old Testament, this promise that will come. And now in the New Testament, it's an announcement of an accomplishment, this blessing which has been ac accomplished. So blessing comes through proclamation. And that's what we do. We pray, we use our possessions, we proclaim Christ who is the blessing. How does God bless the nations? He does it through these means. And lastly, as we close this last question, what does this psalm demand from me? Now, I chose this word demand intentionally. I, I wrestled with what to say here, uh, what word to pick. The reason I picked demand is because of what we see in verse 1. We think of blessing. I think we think too little of blessing most times. Because what do we see in verse 1? We see that God's blessing is his face shining upon us. That when God blesses his people, it's his face that is shining upon us. Think of Moses when he encounters God. And he comes out from that tent of meeting, his face shone. And it was so bright, they had to veil it, right? That's what blessing is. It's God's 
face shining upon us. And so when we are blessed by God, we have been, we have been impacted by the face of God. We have seen God's face. And so we cannot be unaffected by this blessing. That's why I chose this word demand. What does this psalm demand from me? If God is going to bless us, what does this mean? Well, here's the first thing. Let us pray big global prayers. Let us pray big global prayers. Lord, bless us here at this church with finances, staff, interns, pastoral fellows, a cleaned up basement, so that your glory would spread to Malawi and China and Thailand and Bangladesh. So that there's a purpose for these things. Lord, bless me this, with this new job so that I can give more money and more resources to ministry or missions. Lord, bless our family's health so that we have more time to serve the church and do all we can to spread the gospel among our neighbors and among the nations. Pray these kinds of prayers. Pray prayers with the nations in mind. Here's a second thing. Put yourself under God's means of grace. Put yourself under God's means of grace. People, proclamation, prayer. Think about what Sunday worship is all about. It's fuel for the rest of the week. So Sunday isn't something we just come to check the box, right? But that when we come, we want to have glad hearts. We want to have hungry minds to know more of who God is, to know more of his ways. We come and we want to have a reverent fear as we worship together. And think about what's happening as we gather together. While we sing his praise, that's one of God's plans for us, for the nations, is that we would sing of his praise. So we sing together. We hear his blessings proclaimed to us. We need to hear this. We need to be reminded and told who God is, that he is this God of blessing. We pray together for the work of ministry in the world and in our, our own backyard. And we always end with another proclamation, God's blessing to us in the benediction. This is the fuel that we need to make Christ known among the nations. And how does God give us that? He gives it to us through his means, through people, through proclamation, and through prayer. Here's a third thing. Use your possessions for the sake of the nations. Use your possessions for the sake of the nations. This is why you landed that first big job out of college. This is why you got a promotion at work. This is why you can cut your lifestyle and get out of debt. This is why you can say no to some extra commitments. Right? This is why you can open your home and host people for fellowship. All of this aimed at the praise and fear of God among the nations, both here locally in our midst and also across the ocean. Use your possessions for the sake of the nations. And lastly, as we consider God's aim, his plans, his purposes for the nations, well, remember, this psalm was written before we ever became a nation, right? And so we are those nations. This is God's plan for us. This is what he desires for us. And so we can make these plans, these aims, our resolves as well. So in this new year, if you're the type that makes resolutions, maybe you write them down, that's great. Maybe you just have them floating in your head. 
But here's four good things. No more of God's ways. All right? So read the Bible in a year. Maybe you commit to that for the first time. Study the great doctrines of the faith. Read a good book on church history. Resolve to know the ways of God more and more. Have the fear of the Lord constantly before your eyes. Right? Fear him first. Don't, don't fear what's out there in the world. Fear God first. Fear of God prompts our holiness. It's an antidote to our worldly fretfulness. Fear the Lord. Make that your aim. Make that your resolve. Join your voice in praising God. I love that we sing here at this church. Let us not take this for granted. We need to keep singing. We need to keep praising let our corporate worship together fuel us, encourage us, and even as we do so, seek to invite others into it that more and more would praise God. And lastly, be glad in God. There's a, there's a great resolution. This year, I want to be more glad, more happy, more content in God. There's a lot of things we can be discouraged about, to be concerned about, to be alarmed at as we look out into our culture and into our world. But there are infinitely more things in God that we can be happy and glad about. Gladness in God should always overshadow our gloom from the world. So make that your aim. Aim to be glad and happy in God. In conclusion, from this psalm, we see the Lord... He is the true God. His glory he gives to no other. This God, he's a God of grace. He's also the God of perfect justice. He powerfully directs the nations of the earth even as he gently leads his people as a shepherd which cares for his sheep. And his purpose is for all nations to know him, to fear him, to praise him, and to be glad in him. He's accomplishing all of this through his people, he does it as we pray, as we proclaim his excellency. And so may this God and may his purposes be our resolve, be our aim, be our vision as we begin this new year. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we thank you that you speak to us in your word. We, we would not know you apart from you revealing yourself to us. We thank you. That in Psalm 67, you reveal yourself to us and you reveal your plans, your purposes for us. We ask for each one of us here tonight that we would know Christ. We pray that you would grow in us a fear of you, that we would know you more. We pray that we would seek to make your ways known in, in this world and among the nations. So we ask that you would fill us by your spirit. And we pray that you'd be with us and that you would indeed bless us in this new year. Make your face to shine upon us so that from this place the nations would be glad in you. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.